First scripture this morning is Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, the war, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us, the torrent would have swept over us, the raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare, the snare that has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. So this morning's reading is John 9, 1-9. through 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must work, do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbor and those around had formerly seen him begging, asked, Is it this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Our third scripture reading today is from the book of James, chapter 5, uh, 13 through 20. It's uh, chapter 5 of James, verses 13 through 20. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if any among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The Word of God. So the lectionary has had the book of James as its secondary New Testament reading for the last month or so. And as it wraps up, I would be remiss not to preach out of James uh, because it's one of my favorite books of Scripture. But it took a while for me to get to that point to say that James is one of my favorite books of Scripture. Earlier in my Christian walk, the book frustrated me. In no small part, it frustrated me because a lot of people told me it should frustrate me. Uh, I think that's a lot of times, especially earlier in our Christian walk, how things tend to go. But it's definitely what happened to me then, because James's epistle seems like sort of a black sheep of the New Testament, especially when you put it up against Paul's writings. You know, Paul has a lot to say 
Uh, and a lot of times it's easy to see Paul and, and James in sort of a point counterpoint, especially when you see their interaction in the book of Acts. They tend to, to not get along and they tend to not get along in their theology of their writing as well. Paul seems to be about believing and justification of, by faith alone, while James seems to be about doing. This distinction, especially in light of how much of the New Testament is Paul, makes it hard not for James to be, you know, the, the red-headed stepchild of the New Testament, to the point where uh, the German reformer Martin Luther uh, questioned the canonicity of James, less so than some other books. He was really ticked off about Revelation. Uh, but James is one of those that he stowed in the back of the New Testament and uh, kind of hoped that people would ignore. Uh, I'm glad for the most part that history has kind of skipped over that part of Martin Luther's legacy. But it, James has a lot to say about the Christian life. It has a lot to say about not just why we do what we do, but also practically how to do what we do. And our text today shows us exactly that. The book is a book of wisdom. James is seeming to almost write uh, in the same vein as Proverbs in the fact that it's more, you know, platitudes uh, that don't really have much of a connection than it's a letter that has a beginning, middle, and an end. So the way he ends, I think, is important because if you're writing just a collection of bullet points at the end, you're either stowing away things that you want people to ignore or you want to stow away the thing that really hits home. And I think it's the latter is what James is doing in this epistle. So in these final words in James's letter, you see uh, a simple beginning. He says, are you suffering? And then pray. I mean, it's like, boom, staccato. He's like, thank you. And it's, it's, you know, tip your waitresses. Are you happy? You should also pray. Sing songs of praise, he says. But these are personal emotions. These are inward feelings. And what he's saying is that our response to these inward feelings should be to reach out to God. Now, the folks who are the audience of James, we don't really know who James was writing to, but I can assume that whoever James was writing to hears that and he says, okay, James, we do that. Thank you. Um, what, what do you want us to, to know? What do you want us to know from this? He's saying when life brings you down, God is there. And when life is, when you feel like you're, you know, on top of the world, God is there too. God helps you get there. You should, you know, thank God. You should reach out to God. But then he continues. Both in our good times and our suffering, things don't happen in a vacuum. So James wants us to know what to do about what causes the suffering. James wants us to know what to do about what happens to make us suffer because suffering is kind of like a sunburn. It's kind of like a splinter. It's kind of like a gunshot wound. It is something that is often frustrating, all-encompassing, terrifying, but it's caused by something. It's a product of some trauma, some event, some happening in our lives, and we pray through our suffering, but James wants us to know what to practically do about the cause. James focuses on two causes, sickness and sin. Now, our Friday nights at home have developed a sort of tradition. But tradition is a, is a fancy word. 
for what it really is. It's more of a battle plan, really. Uh, contingency plan might be a good way to look at it. You see, Eden loves waking up with the sun. She tells us that she can't sleep with light. So the minute that sunlight breaches the tree line, she's up and at them. And Saturday, so I wake up between me going to work, Alicia going to school, and Eden going to school. We have to be up at 5.30 every morning during the week in order to survive. Uh, and Sundays, we wake up early to be here. So Saturday is the one day of the week. We get to sleep in past 6, and I will fight tooth and nail for that liberty. So when she's up and Adam, the other part of her being awake is that she doesn't like being alone. I don't know if y'all have met Eden, but she is a people person. And a part of that means she does not want a minute where she is the only conscious person in the house. Uh, so she tends to uh, accidentally wake us up. Uh, she will uh, let the dog in our room. Uh, she will, which, uh, I mean, 65-pound dog immediately jumping on your bed, you're up at that point. Uh, she'll turn the TV up too loud. Uh, she will drop something outside Winnie's room. That's happened once or twice. That's the worst. Uh, but that has happened. Um, anything she can do to get us up and moving. So the one way that we've gotten around that, and it's terrible. Y'all can judge me all you want. We put the iPad in a room on Friday nights and say, when you wake up on Saturday morning, you can watch Disney Channel on this iPad. You don't even have to get out of bed. It's going to be great for you. So you don't have to be unconscious unconscious but you have to be in this room so we just basically look at her and we're like look you don't wake us up before eight no matter what happens don't wake us up before eight so friday night when it's uh, you can say friday night you can say saturday morning however you want to look at it 3 40 a.m when my door busts open and sobbing happens and she says daddy i'm sorry but i'm really sick i'm really sick my throat hurts and she's uh just sobbing and I know part of that sobbing is because she knows it's a long time before eight o'clock in the morning <laughs> but also she was really sick her fever was quite high uh she was uh she's very clearly sick uh last night was even worse uh but it's as I wrote this sermon making sure that she had equal number of appropriate like uh Advil and Tylenol and had enough Gatorade in her uh it's Hard not to think about what sickness means as I was writing this. Sickness is like a freight train. It often comes in fast and hard and stampeding over everything in its way. Now our situation is just a fever and a sore throat. When I wrote this, she hadn't thrown up yet, so let's add that. Uh, uh, but all of us have stories of illnesses that have destroyed our day, that have destroyed our weeks, destroyed our months, destroyed our lives. They've overstayed their welcome like a, like a bad neighbor that doesn't understand when it's time to go. James realizes the effect sickness has on our life. James realizes the way it can disturb us, it can destroy us. He calls us, when we're sick, to, to not just pray, to not just have an interaction between us and God, but to go to the church, to go to our community and have them pray for us to have them anoint, anoint us with oil. We're supposed to go to God in prayer when we're suffering. We're also supposed to go to the church uh, 
to, to reach out for a healing prayer. Likewise, when, we're, when we've sinned, when we've missed the mark on who God wants us to be, we go to our brothers and sisters and we confess. And prayer comes then too, prayer that heals the same way. Because just like illness, we're not supposed to go about it alone. Why does James put these two things together? At first blush, it doesn't seem like two things that would go together. Why is our community the answer to these problems? How are these two things even connected? But you see, sin, like sickness, sneaks into our lives like an unwelcome guest. Sin, like sickness, has the ability to completely derail our plans, our relationships, and make our future seem bleak and questionable. But that's not all these two things have in common. Both sin and sickness have the ability to make us feel alone. When we're sick, it's easy to feel like a burden to others. Eden felt like a burden in the wee hours of Saturday morning. She knew something was wrong. She knew she couldn't handle it on her own. But she also knew that no one wants to be woke up in the middle of the night. Sin is the same way. The thing about sin is so often sin affects those around us, affects our relationships. We can speak ill, Ill of someone. We can be selfish. We sin in what we have done and what we have left undone. That's, it's hard not to see the way our behavior makes us a burden, so it's easier to retreat. Not only do we feel like a burden, but we also feel shame. You'll ever have people come over and like that hour before they come over, you're doing the flight of the bumblebee where you're just shoving stuff into the back room that you're hoping they're not going to go in. I do that every time because no matter what, I don't know why on some level we want to make it look like our houses aren't lived in. But I'm, I'm pretty sure all of us do that, right? When someone comes to ride in our car and we desperately try to make it look like those 10 bags of Taco Bell aren't in the floorboard of the passenger seat. Now, I picked up Maxine from the airport on Wednesday, and I, I knew I was picking her up. I had the opportunity to clean my car, but I still didn't do it until she's standing right there, and I'm like, I'm going to put your bags in here, and I'm going to hide this Hardee's right now. I knew that I was doing it, but I still felt the shame of a gross car. I felt shame in that moment, and that's just one of the little things that can cause us to feel a bit of shame. But it's something that nobody wants anybody else to see, but we all have it. Sin is the same way. We don't want folks to see how much of a mess our life is. So we make nice. We throw it under the rug. We pretend like we have it all under control when everything's really a mess inside. Our shame keeps us from making a real connection that can lead to healing. More often than we'd like to admit it, sickness is similar. When we get sick, we immediately think, I should have washed my hands more. I shouldn't have ate that. I really shouldn't have ate that. I shouldn't have drank that. Maybe the kids should have been doused with sanitizer just a little bit more. I can't help but think about one of my favorite shows of all time. It was a sitcom called Scrubs. And, on, and Scrubs is set in a hospital. And it's most of the folks that I've talked to that work in a hospital say it's one of the most accurate representations of what actually goes down in a hospital on a regular basis. 
and the main character has an episode where he's he's been at the hospital for a little while and he's really starting to think like a doctor and he sees all of the people in his life that he works with and he he says once you've been in this system long enough you see how everybody you love is going to die because you see all of the little things that lead to bad decisions you see the he smokes too much you see the diabetes is probably coming you see the the heart problems that are probably on the way it's the kind of thinking that makes us think that somehow some way the maladies in our lives are at some level our fault but this isn't a new thought science didn't birth our understanding that sometimes things that happen to us health-wise come from us but because in our gospel reading this morning we see a man who when the disciples see his blindness they immediately say hey jesus whose fault is that his parents do that he somehow magically sinned before he was born. What's going on? But Jesus knows how this works. He knows that most of the time, it's just chance. It's just life. It's just bad things happening. The system was built, though, where this man, by no fault of his own, was completely ostracized because of his blindness. It's assumed by the whole community that something evil happened and so they don't care for him. He's left begging. His sickness has been confused for sin. But even if somehow his blindness was his fault, if somehow that's what happened, do you think Jesus would have healed him any less? I mean, it might have been slightly grosser than spit mud on the face, but probably not. Both sin and sickness are things that cannot and should not get in the way of a real loving connection. They cannot and should not keep us ostracized from a community, and they cannot and should not make us feel any less loved by the God of the universe. But when this man is healed, he walks past the folks who have been seeing him day in and day out, begging on the street. He walks past his neighbors, and they barely recognize him. They haven't seen him. They don't know him, because all they've seen is his problem. They've ignored, they've ostracized, they've marginalized. They've heaped shame on him and left him to rot. Now, anointing the sick with oil does not make the pain go away. It doesn't make their sickness magically disappear, but it does connect them to a group and a body that loves them. It gives hope. It adds a little bit of color to the days that feel lost in gray. It might not heal them, but it can save them. I know that's the, the translation I read from, the New Revised Standard, does not say that the prayer heals. It says the prayer saves, which might include healing, but it definitely includes something more than that. It includes uh, feeling apart, a feeling back from the brink. It can make folks feel seen, connected, loved. And confession does the same thing. We can't pray the consequences of our actions away. But we can pray in a way that creates a support system that allows us as individuals and as a community to come out 
on the other side a little bit better, a little bit more like Christ. And then we are healed. So often, when we have someone come into our life who's hurting, who's hurt someone, who's lost and don't know what to do, it's easy to feel lost in return. It's easy to feel like it's impossible to cut through the loneliness, through the hard, entrenched pain to make a difference. We feel like we might have nothing to offer, nothing that could possibly fix the problem. So why do anything? But we're not called to fix people. We're called to welcome people. We're called to be a community where folks who feel sick, who feel lost, who feel alone, who are wandering, can feel at home for once. Now, my favorite band also happens to be a, a band that Alicia despises. And there's something fun about that, you know? Like when it's, you have to listen to your music alone because your spouse can't just stand the voice of the guy that's singing. The band's called The Mountain Goats. I have a sticker in my office that says, I only listen to The Mountain Goats. It's kind of... It's kind of something egotistical about a band actually putting a sticker out that says that, but they did, and there's a good reason. They have something along the lines of 800 songs at this point, and it's hard for me not to find one that allows me to, to filter complex thought through them. They've got a song called Color in Your Cheeks, and the songwriter, John Darnielle, has described it as a song about belonging and about acceptance. He sings... They come in by the dozens, walking and crawling. Some are bright-eyed, and some are dead on their feet. And they came from Zimbabwe, from Soviet Georgia, from East St. Louis, and from Paris, and they might live across the street. But they came, and when they finally made it here, it was the least that we could do to make our welcome clear. So come on in. We haven't slept for weeks, but drink some of this. It'll put color in your cheeks. When someone's hurting, whether from the weight of the world, from happenstance, or from their own actions, it's easy to feel like the color has been drained out of their life. They, they might feel alone, feel dead on their feet. But James is telling us to be those who welcome. It's the least we can do, but a lot of times it's exactly what folks need when they're hurting the most. Now, food and drink are often offered to folks who are hurting, who are lost, who are sick. Because when the color is drained out of their life, the color is drained out of their face too. You can see it on them. We're often sapped by the toll of sickness and sin in our lives. It's compassion and charity that can bring the color back into the life, that can bring color back into the cheeks of those we're talking to. Now today, we're celebrating the table. We're celebrating the observance of communion. And this is important because Jesus told us to do it. But it's a, also a place where Jesus meets us. Wherever we are, no matter what we're going through, no matter how sick, no matter how sinful, it's where Jesus meets us.
but it's also a place where we meet each other. No matter where we are and where we've come from, our bodies need to eat and drink to keep going. We all need to do it, so we, we might as well do it together. There's a quote that I love by a guy whose name I can't remember. That's most of my quotes. And he says, before we worry about what to eat, we should worry about who to eat with. And I think that's pertinent. But just as we physically need to eat, we spiritually need to eat. When you eat this bread and take this cup, we feed ourselves spiritually. So while we do this today, I ask that you think of the ways that we have helped each other through the hard times. And how, think of the ways that we can help each other through the hard times. Think of the ways that sharing a meal can add the color back to your cheeks. Think of the ways that we can lift each other up. Think of the ways we can pray for each other. Think of the ways that we can anoint each other and the ways that we can be with each other through the sin and the sickness. Think of the ways we can carry each other's burdens. And think of the ways that we can help each other to feel the love of Christ.